Morning, everybody. Invite you to take your Bibles. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 6 this morning, verses 8 through 15. Exciting to see all the Acts journals coming in. Um, if you don't have one, you can get one at the uh, hub, info hub this morning. We're using these as our Bibles because they are a Bible, um, but they also have a journal section next to the script. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 6, verse 8 in a moment. I wanted to mention something. We have a couple in our church that is leaving Tuesday night to go to a new ministry, Dave and Sharon Ronan. Um, they are going to take a church in Japan. It is a Japanese church, but also has um, Americans from the military base that is there. And uh, I'd like to just, I'm going to pray for them in my prayer after I read the scripture this morning. But I wanted to mention them to you. A number of you know them. I'm going to have them stand just for a second. So if you don't know them, you know who I'm talking about. But it's a different ministry. It's a challenging ministry. I was just reminded of that again this morning as I was talking to them again before the service, um, even on the vaccine level it's uh, and, and the masking level in particular. It's a challenge because all of the Japanese members of the church wear masks because they feel that's complying with the government. None of the Americans wear masks because the American government on the American base, military base, has said we operate under American principles and we're not required to wear masks. So they're trying to figure out, should they wear masks? Should they not wear masks? I mean, it's just real. This is real stuff, right? I mean, we, we understand this, but um, there's a need of wisdom for them. Dave and Sharon, would you guys just stand for a second? Thank you. Thanks. And uh, and I do want to I do want to pray for you guys after I've read the scripture. We're going to read Acts chapter six, verse eight through fifteen. I'm going to ask you to read along silently as I read our text for our sermon this morning. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. Father, we come this morning. Lord, first of all, I thank you for your word. God, how we have found it to be a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We have found it to be the living word. And Lord, in these next few minutes, as we reflect on Scripture, God, I pray that you might take your truth and speak into each of our lives as you discern the need. I do pray for Dave and Sharon, Lord. God, thank you for the 
vast ministry experience they have as missionaries, as as um, military couple, uh, Shannon's being a teacher in uh, Russia all these years, just so many different ways you have equipped them for international ministry. And Lord, I pray that you would guide their steps, uh, give them wisdom. I pray even as they pack up and finally prepare to leave Tuesday night, Lord, you would very obviously go before them. I ask you would give them, uh, show them signs of your favor as the psalmist paid, prayed for, just in a practical way somehow uh, affirm to them. You're with them, you're going before them, you're going to direct their steps, and I ask you, Lord, to use them for your glory there. I pray now that you would open your word to us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. To have someone say to you, you're full of it, is not a particularly complimentary statement in our culture. And yet, as Dr. Luke is giving his narrative about a man named Stephen, he commends him for being full of things. Five things, actually. Beginning in the, the passage we looked at last week, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, we see five different things that are expressed as Stephen being full of. These phrases are so pregnant with meaning that I felt each warranted an explanation, and that's going to be the focus of our study this morning. Stephen, as we saw last week, was appointed to the role, along with six others, of caring for the Hellenist widows who were the Greek-speaking, Greek-cultured women who are now widows, who are now living in Jerusalem, who are Jews, but who speak a different language in their, in their synagogues, in their homes, and for some unintentional oversight have not been cared for. We looked at that last week. The seven men were appointed. Stephen and Philip were among that number. Later on in the book, these seven men are actually called the seven, just like the apostles in Acts 6, 1 through 7 are called the twelve. They are the magnificent seven, if you will, of the early church who have been appointed to care for the special needs of the Hellenist widows. But something unique is taking place in the lives of two of them. Stephen and Philip are moving now, and, and of course, time is going on in the early church. They're moving out of the primary role of food distribution and care of the widows they're taking a very public role in preaching ministry. We read here that Stephen is doing signs and wonders around Jerusalem. Only the apostles to this point have done those signs and miracles. They are actually regularly called the signs of the apostles. But the 12 have laid hands on Philip and Stephen, and they have been conferring on them these miraculous sign gifts, at least on these two of the seven. Stephen was incredibly influential. His preaching and his life appear to be the primary method that God used to convince Saul of his need of salvation. I'll try to demonstrate that today and also next week. We're going to look at Stephen in three sermons, and we're going to focus on three things about him. If we can bring up that chart, the first of those things is Stephen the man. 
in our passage this morning. Next, next time, Stephen's message. And third, Stephen the martyr. I'd like to look at these five characteristics that are cited as Stephen being full of. The first of those is found in Acts chapter 6, verse 3. It is called, He is full of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the one that is most prominently identified with Stephen. Three different times, he is described in verse 3 of chapter 6, in verse 5 of chapter 6, and in verse 55 of chapter 7, it says, Stephen is full or filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the foundational reality describing Stephen that really empowers all the others. All these other four things are but outgrowths of those, that characteristic that he is a man that walks by the filling of the Spirit. I want to take a little time on this, and honestly, I'm going to take more time on this first one because I believe it is foundational for the others than I will the other four. And go to a parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 5 where we're given a sense of what does it mean to be filled by the Spirit. And in Ephesians 5.18, the Apostle Paul says it this way, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now here, he's, he's contrasting these experiences. It seems a very odd comparison Except when we realize, first of all, there are, there are some tremendous similarities. To be brought, to be, to be uh, intoxicated, to be drunk, is to be, we use this term, to be brought under the influence of alcohol. What he's talking about when he says spirit control is we are brought under the influence of the Spirit of God. But there are also direct contrast between these two experiences, which actually highlight the significance of the phrase being full of the Spirit. The term is in the present tense in Ephesians 5, where it's talking about being filled with the Spirit, carrying the idea of it is to be a lifestyle. It is also here in the present tense describing Stephen. He was under the influence of the Spirit. Now, the control, there are three things that are involved in that. Number one is the issue of control. And here I'm going to try, try to draw a quick contrast between being drunk and under the influence of alcohol and being under the influence of the Spirit. The first thing is the matter of control. Drunkenness is to lose control. Your words, your emotions, your desires and cravings are given into without restraint. You really don't have any capacity to control yourself. When you are controlled by the Spirit, there is a control different and more profound than any control you have ever experienced. It is the opposite of a lack of control. It is the embracing of a control of self. There is a self-control that impacts your words, your emotions, your responses, your actions, the sarks or the flesh, which is basically our internal immaterial parts bent towards self, begins to lessen in influence as the Spirit of God begins to bring one's, one's expression of self-orientation, self-absorption, selfishness, self-centeredness, as it begins to bring that under control, and the Spirit of God begins to create an empowered life that is lived more centered on others. That doesn't mean that you don't still struggle even 
with spirit control. It doesn't mean you don't still have a splitting headache when you're up night after night with a little one. It doesn't mean you you will feel euphorically happy when there's conflict at your workplace or conflict in your family. It doesn't mean you will feel not feel pain when your loved one is suffering from disease or you're feeling the limitations of age. But here's what it does mean. It does mean that you are given a strength to trust, a power to persevere and not respond with hateful words or violent behaviors or self-destructive actions. It gives the power of a joyous, peace-laden trust in the midst of adversity and stress, a power to not be driven by fear, a power to love, to give, to protect others. The filling of the Spirit gives a supernatural measure of self-control over the self-life. Romans 7 pictures the influence of the Spirit in people's life in a remarkable way in the contrast of Romans 7 and Romans 8. In Romans chapter 7, Paul is talking all the time in that passage. He says things like this, what I want to do, I don't do. What I hate, I do. In Romans chapter 7, the Spirit of God is never mentioned, even though I believe Romans 7 is talking about Paul after his experience in Romans 6 of become a believer. He says, in my strength, this is how I live. There isn't the control. I don't have the capacity myself. However, in Romans chapter 8, there's an entirely different picture. In Romans chapter 8, 18 times the Spirit of God is mentioned, and Paul culminates all the things he said in Romans chapter 8 when he says, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. He talks in that passage about uh, the life that he's experienced through Christ, a life of life and peace. He describes the first thing that, that is brought into our lives as we live under the Spirit's influence is control, the opposite of the control of drunkenness. Secondly, there is a clarity. Being drunk does not bring clarity. It's not a stimulant enabling sharper senses, sensors, senses and heightened awareness. It's a depressant. It, it dulls your vision. One of the sobriety checks is to check your ability to focus because if you're drunk, you can't really focus. Alcohol knocks out reality. It is actually a way for some of avoiding reality. It, it, it loses clarity. And if life is hard, some people, I just want, I, I, I don't want to have my limitations. I don't, I don't want to think about, you know, life is so hard. I'm just going to drink my way out of it tonight. It's a way of avoiding reality. The spirit of God's influence is the opposite. It brings clarity. It brings a true view of reality. When the spirit controls you, you're able to see with true perspective. It enables you to see your circumstances in the light of what is true. To see them with the lens of a big God, a good God. A God of mercy, powerful, present, sovereign, who never fails, who is always with his children and has promised to give us all things toward the ultimate goal of changing us into the likeness of Jesus. When the Spirit is, 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 in, is influencing, when we're under the influence of the Spirit, there is a clarity of life. We're going to see the manifestation of that in the life of Stephen. But when you're thinking... When, when you are under the Spirit's influence, you're thinking the right way, you can be responding the right way. I remember 
talking to a young woman one time, and she was talking about her father and watching him as she was growing up in their home and and a fairly controlling person, a variety of circumstances, anxiety was a big issue. And, and she said, the weirdest experience to me was my father with all these things going on would, when he was exasperated with himself and, and, and life, he would disappear in his bedroom. And one time, I, and, he, and he would come out a changed man. And she said, one time I snuck in to just figure out what was in there that was doing that. She went in and she saw her father there with an open Bible on his bed and he was kneeling before it and just crying out to God. And she said, I learned from that as a, as a, as a, a middle school student, the power of God being able to change even my dad, who was a believer, but still recognized the need of bringing himself under the influence of God's spirit. It brings clarity in living. It brings contentment. Alcohol is described in these ways as an escape for reality. You get hammered, you get tanked, you get wasted, you get plastered, you get wrecked, or your word du jour that you would use. It gives a temporary rush or relief from reality. But you awaken the next day the same person with the same issues facing you, and if one continues to get drunk as a way to avoid the pain and the struggles of life, It does not lead to a lifestyle of meaning or contentment. Paul tells us where it leads in this passage in Ephesians 5. He says, do not get drunk because it leads to debauchery. This slide pictures that. The word debauchery is actually asotia. It's from two Greek words, no and saving. It's wasted. It's, It's thrown away. It's squandered. It's used in Luke 15:43 of the prodigal son who in the verb form squandered his wealth. The contrast with life under the spirit's influence and this is not just I I'm not just saying that a person being a Christian experiences these realities. I'm saying that a person who is a Christian living under the influence of the spirit finds that it is a life, as Romans 15 says this, the God of hope will fill you with all joy and peace by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 14, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. There is a contentedness. Stephen lived under the influence of the Spirit, present tense, continually. And the result in his life was he was an individual that found contentedness, that found control to his more basic, his more base in lifestyle and, and, and orientations. He had clarity. This was the quality of the man that is continually referred to as a man full of the Spirit, under the influence of the Spirit. And it was foundational for all of these other elements. So we can want these others, but it starts here. Paul reminds us in Romans 7 and 8, we're, gonna, we're not going to put these babies on, be power, you know, have power, grace, wisdom, and faith. They are the outgrowth of a life that has lived under God's Spirit. But let's look at those other things quickly. The second thing we find about Stephen, it's found in verse 3 of chapter 6, is that he was full 
of wisdom. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. Wisdom is simply living life as it is designed to be lived. It is seeing life with God's perspective. It is arranging your life with God's perspective. I want, I want to process this. Stephen is said to be full of wisdom. In three other t- phrases in Acts 6 and 7, Stephen is described as being motivated and, and, and carried by wisdom. This is important because of this. There are only four times that Dr. Luke uses the word wisdom in the book of Acts. All four of them are about Stephen. Stephen was exhibit A of living wisely. He spoke with wisdom. He lived with wisdom. He was filled. He, was brought, uh, he lived on a lifestyle of, of wisdom. Now, here's the thing, and I've thought about this a lot. How did, how did Stephen know? I mean, excuse me, how did Luke know? Luke never met Stephen. Luke becomes, come, enters the scene years later, well after Stephen was dead. How does Luke know? Well, as I've mentioned many times, much of the book of Acts has, was given to, Steve, was given to, the, to Luke through the influence and through the messaging of the Apostle Paul. If you look at verse 9 of our section this morning, Acts chapter 6, here's what's going on. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. The synagogue here and all of these churches, uh, synagogues, and whether there was one and these were all people groups in them or they were four different synagogues, some people, there were two different synagogues. But basically, these synagogues were unique in that they were Hellenist synagogues. These were all Greek uh, individuals that were them. Now, now hang with me because this is where I think it's, it gets interesting. All of these congregations, or this one big congregation, has within it a group that is called those that are from Cilicia. Cilicia was the small province where Tarsus was, where Paul was from. Now, Paul, we know at this time, I've mentioned this often, is being trained by Gamaliel in Jerusalem the leader, the the most profound teaching, living rabbi at the time, Paul is living in Jerusalem. Where's he going? To synagogue. Highly likely, he's going to this synagogue. I'll show you why I say that in a moment as well. It's highly likely that Paul is, in his Saul time of life, is engaged in this. Stephen also may be going there because Stephen has a Greek Background, we don't know that, but I think it's very likely Saul is going to this synagogue. The second reason I would say that is because years later, Saul is going to come to Jesus. He's then going to spend three years, we're told, out in the wilderness, just studying the Bible by himself, listening to the Spirit of God, being taught, and he then makes a visit to Jerusalem. When he comes to Jerusalem, he records it in Acts, but it's also recorded in Galatians chapter 1. He only saw three people. One, he saw Peter, and that was because Barnabas 
uh, introduced him because the apostles said, we don't trust this guy. It, you know, even though he's supposedly been a Christian for three years, we haven't seen him. He hasn't been around and we don't trust him. He's the guy that murdered Christians. He, he was the greatest opposite, opposition. Peter ended up spending 15 days with the apostle Paul. The second person he met was James, who was the leader of the Jerusalem church. The third person, and he only met with him once. The third group of people that he spent time with were the Hellenist Jews that lived in Jerusalem. We know that because they're the guys that he actually talked to. Now, he didn't see any of the Christians. He didn't see uh, any of the other apostles. So how did he spend time with the Hellenist Jews? Likely, they're the people that are in his synagogue where he attended, where the Silesia Greeks went. These are people, I believe, why did he even have conversation with these people? All of a sudden you read when he's there in Jerusalem and he's there only a couple of weeks, these, these Hellenist Jews are debating him and fighting. Well, why isn't it the religious leaders? They're the people he does life with. I believe they were the people in his own synagogue. And as he's there, he's come back. And now he's come back and he's changed. He's grown from uh, this, this guy who had been for them the attack dog as Jesus detractor. And now he's become the Jesus defender. And they don't like it. As a matter of fact, we're told when he returns and in the conflicts he has with the, the, the Hellenist Jews, he, the, 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 uh, Peter enables him to escape. They get him up to Caesarea, which is in the north, and send him all the way back home to Tarsus to rescue him. These guys were trying to kill him. I'm saying all this, and again, I'm, I, I'm a history guy, so I get excited with this. Here's what I think happened. This was Saul's congregation, his, his synagogue. They're the ones that are confronting Stephen. They're the ones that are putting the heat on him. It's not ultimately the, the main group of Judaism, the, the Hebrew Jews. It's this group where I think the firebrand Saul is involved. Saul is likely involved with these people. He's the one that's able to give such intimate records of all that's going on with Stephen. And what has impacted Saul? This man has wisdom. I don't understand it. I mean, I'm trained by Gamaliel. There are others of this that have been trained. But what does he have? There's no indication of formal training. Stephen comes with a profound view of understanding of the scripture, of, of God, of life, so much so that those that are a part of the synagogue finally say, we can't stop this guy, so we're going to start having false witnesses raised up, and we're going to drag him before the Sanhedrin because the Sanhedrin want to get rid of this, this Christian thing anyway. I believe this is part of what God is saying to Paul in Acts chapter 10 when he says to Paul, Acts chapter 9, and he blinds him on the road to Damascus where he's going to, to persecute the Christians. And Saul is, is blinded. And God says to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he says this, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. The goads were sticks 
with a, a metal point on the end that you would use with the oxen. And you would goad them along, say, say, don't go that way. And they, they'd want to turn away. And they turn, you want to go left, so you poke them on the right. Paul is, what, what are the goats? I think part of the goats is the life of Stephen, watching Stephen, watching Stephen's characteristics live, live out. Because the next thing we read about Saul after this event is him on the road, fighting loudly, it's persecuted, but ultimately then being in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Emmaus, on the road to Damascus. Third, I'll go faster, full of faith. Acts chapter 6, verse 5, it says Stephen was full of faith. To understand what Luke means by this phrase, we need to look at Stephen's sermon. Acts chapter 7, Stephen is presenting a picture of the sovereign plan of God through history. The religious leaders are questioning him about the law given through Moses as if Jesus is trying to discredit their religion. And, and Stephen, we'll look at this next week, Stephen's saying, no, God's at work. God was doing this and he was, he was forecasting this years later and all this has been going forward and it's all pointing to Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of it all. But he's presenting this panoramic history. God's in the move. God's on the move. God's on the move. God's on the move. Rediting, re, re, recording and, and outworking his redemptive story. To be full of faith for Stephen was to see history that way. That when you believe that history is his story, that God is working out his purposes and plan, you begin to look at life the way Stephen did. You look at life differently. You realize that you are in the story. You are just a bit player, but you are part of an eternal God-led plan for his people. Romans 8 says all things work together for good. But I say, well, what's going on in my life? Is it good? It's horrible. It, nobody would want this. Nobody would want the circumstances in my life. How is it good? Well, Romans 8 verse 29 and 30 tell us because it is fulfilling the purpose of God in our lives to conform us to the image of Jesus. It says every part of Stephen's life Stephen saw as working to shape him into the image of Jesus Christ. And if you belong to Christ, it's true of you. That what is going on at this moment in your life is what you would pray for if you knew everything that God does. And the more that you can embrace that, the more you're going to be able to accept with joy whatever God has allowed into your life and say, God, can it really be that you are at work in my life all the time? Stephen was full of faith. And he was bold. And he was fearless in the face of the people that could kill him because he knew God was at work. I heard years ago a man named Joseph Son, T-S-O-N, speak, and Joseph Son told the story of, of being um, in England. And while he was there, he was, um, he was doing his doctoral work. He was from Romania. And when he returned, 
was returning to Romania where he knew he would be probably either put to death or certainly persecuted un under the dictatorial leadership. Americans and Westerners told him, you know, Joseph, are you, have you, um, do you think your plan will succeed? And he said, I just chuckled to myself because it was such a Western question. He said, I don't have a plan. My only plan is to obey God. And he's telling me to go back. I don't know what it's going to look like. But he said, I was prompted. So maybe, maybe I'm being ignorant and, and the Lord wants to give me more clarity. And so he asked the Lord, God, would you give me a specific passage of scripture or something that just lets me know what you want me to do? And he said, almost verbally, God clearly led him to the portion of scripture in the Gospels, where it said this, I am sending you as sheep among wolves. And he said, my message from God was, Joseph, you're going as a helpless sheep into a pack of wolves. And he said, I went. He actually did get arrested. He did suffer uh, torture and everything. It's an amazing story. Joseph's son was full of faith. Joseph's son believed there was a God who was at work that could even send a, a weak, fearful lamb into the midst of wolves because he knew that God was at work all the time, everywhere, at every moment. Stephen was full of faith. Fourth, Stephen was full of grace. Stephen had a personal understanding and experience with grace. For him, different from many of his compatriots of the time, he understood that salvation and acceptance with God would not be by his righteousness, that he was accepted by God through Jesus, blood and righteousness, as the old hymn said. That song, that portrayal, that theological thought pictures the two sides of the cross in terms of redemption. It pictures the side where our sin is laid on Christ and where Jesus becomes liable for our sins as if he committed our sins. And through his shed blood, there is the offering of forgiveness. But there is also the other side of the cross where Jesus' righteousness, the righteous life that he has lived, is laid to our account, and it is as if we become liable for his righteousness. And, and, and this man, Stephen, was full of grace. Grace, he understood grace. He experienced grace. He imbibed the glory of grace. And as a recipient of grace, he became an extender of grace. It always happens. The people that are really stunned with the glory of grace, the deeper we go and, 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 and the farther we, we dip into the, to the well of grace in our own lives and see our own sin and our own undeservedness, but the, the beauty of grace. You become more of an extender. 
you become more tolerant because you've seen yourself and you've seen the majesty of what it means that Jesus has laid his own righteousness at your account. And you are, as Ephesians 1 so beautifully says it, you are accepted in the beloved Son. It's why we're not surprised to hear the very last words that are spoken out of the mouth of Stephen upon the cross, uh, uh, when his last stones are striking him, breaking his bones, and eventually taking his life. Stephen cries out at the end of chapter 7, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He who had experienced grace extended. This man was full of grace. The last thing, he's full of power. Acts chapter 6, verse 7, we see the power in his actions. He was entrusted by God to do signs and wonders. Only the 12 apostles, Stephen, Philip, and Barnabas are given that honor in the book of Acts. They are reported as doing those miracles. And again, the term here, performing, is it carries the idea he was regularly doing those kind of works. We'll talk more about what that means and what that means for today next week. There was power in his words. They could trip him up in his words. They could not trip him up in his words. They had to get false witnesses to make up exaggerated claims. There was power in his his influence. In verse 15, he's changed. There's two incredible visuals here. Verse 15 says this in chapter 6. His face looked like an angel. I don't actually know what an angel looks like. I don't know how they knew. I'm guessing it was he had a a radiance about him, something, but it certainly was stunning for all the boys as they were trying to, 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 to find a reason to shut him up. But the second thing is described in verse 56. He said, as, as he was there just before he, he prays for the people that are taking his life, he looks up and apparently only to him alone it was revealed. He said, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That standing carried the idea that usually Jesus is, is pictured as sitting there. But the idea is he's actively looking and, and concerned about Stephen. There is a power that this man had. He's full of the Spirit. He's full of wisdom, full of grace, full of faith, full of power. If you want to be full of the things that Stephen was, I just have three simple suggestions. Number one, meditate on the Scripture every morning. You know, there's a reason that in every generation of Christians, there's a whole bunch of of new books and new materials and new guides that talk about how to have your daily time with God. Whether it is the quiet time diary, whether it is morning by morning, daily devotions, uh, daily bread, all the others we could give, it's not optional, it's essential, it's necessary. And, and, and I realize this, oh, well, man, I thought you were going to give us something insightful here. I mean, I, I already know I need to do that. Well, I know you need know you need to do that. But let me just say this. If you had a friend that came to you and said, uh, Man, I, I've got a headache. I feel sick. I'm so exhausted. 
I feel weak. I don't know what's wrong with me. And you said, well, man, what's going on? I mean, I, 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 have you caught anything? You've been to the doctor? No, 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 no. I, I, you taking your temperature? Yeah, I don't have anything. Yeah. I, I, well, what's, what's happening? You got headaches. You, you're achy. You're tired. You, you feel lethargic. I mean, what's going on? I said, well, I, I don't know. It's really not anything different. Well, what, you know, how's your diet? Well, I haven't really eaten in three days because I, I'm just so busy. Here's what you would say to your friend. You're an idiot. Of course you got a headache and, and everything else. You're trying to do your life and, and move forward. Anybody that's fasted three days, no, you better build into your life some space. You're going to be tired. You're going to be lethargic. You're probably going to have a headache. You're going to feel achy. We all know we need to eat. But honestly, I don't know what to say to myself and to you when we go day after day without feeding on the word except you're an idiot. Thank you, Mark. We need to be doing that. You say, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know where to start. I mean, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to start in the Bible. I tried doing this once, and I did one of these, and it was this Levi Tychus thing, and I, I didn't know what. Okay, here's a suggestion. We have these Acts journals, right? We're encouraging people to use them. We're encouraging people during the week to um, read it and take notes. Next Sunday, God willing, we're going to be preaching Acts chapter 7. I want you to buy one of these journals. If you don't have the money, they're five bucks at the thing. I'm never going to say this again. If you don't have five bucks, go out to the table and say, Pastor Mark is taking care of my, I'm not promising to buy it, but I'm promising to make sure you get it. Um, Pastor Mark said, I can get a journal this morning. Get a journal, and for the next seven days, read Acts chapter 7, and start writing things that jump out at you. I guarantee they will. Start asking questions. What do you mean by that? What was he talking about there? Why does he keep using that over and over? Just meditate on the Word. Just let it begin to speak into you. Just you. I'll tell you what'll happen if you start approaching the scriptures that way. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to start having experience like this. Oh my goodness. The apostle Paul never saw this. What I saw, what I found. This is so amazing. God the Spirit will speak through his word to you. The second thing, have a list of things you pray for each day. Put them in your journal. Just I, I I don't mean a hundred, six specific things you're beginning to pray for. People, just start praying. And last, ask God for one person that you can tell what you've been hearing from God about. It'll make a difference when you're able to start sharing what God is speaking into your life. God wants us to be full of it. 
But the it is here in Acts 6. It's what Stephen had and was, and what we can have and can be.